I want to thank Garrett and Elijah for that. It's always nice to hear those good strings. Let's turn to Psalm 73 this morning. This will be our last Sunday in Psalm 73. Now, if you're, you read through the Bible through a year or you read through the Psalms, uh, Psalm 73 may not catch your attention. Uh, you may just kind of zoom through it and go, oh, well, that's, that's good. And, and we have spent the four weeks, this will be the fourth week in this psalm. And I think one of the reasons is it is so germane to how the Christian views the world. It is germane because we can often, often ask ourselves or often ask the Lord the question of, Lord, that, that person, those people out there, they care nothing for you. They have no faith. They demonstrate no, none of, of your gifts, none of your mercy and compassion. Why are they, from what I can see, being blessed? Why are they doing so well? And here I am, and I'm striving to do what, what you call me to do. I'm trying, striving to be faithful. But it seems like I'm getting all the hardships. It seems like I'm getting all the trials, and they're getting all the gravy over there. Now, what's the story, Lord? And this is the type of... One of the types of questions that Asaph, our psalmist, asks in this psalm. And today we come to the conclusion. Today we come to the answer because Asaph, who has struggled with this, comes to a realization of what the Lord is doing. So if you're able, would you stand with me? And today we're just going to do the end of the psalm, but I will read the entire psalm so we get the whole picture of it. So let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word... Open our eyes that we might see. The psalmist who writes under your inspiration, it is here in your word, it is here for us today. He writes of the struggles that he had. Some of the struggles, same struggles that we have. And Lord, help us understand and see the conclusion that he comes to and what you want us to understand. Open our eyes to your word today, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So this is Psalm 73. I'll begin in verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Beyond these are the wicked and always at ease, they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I should have betrayed the generation of my children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely thou dost set them in slippery places, and thou dost cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, 
thou wilt despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast taken hold of my right hand. With thy counsel thou wilt guide me, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from thee will perish. Thou hast destroyed all those who are unfaithful to thee. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all thy works. This is God's inspired word for us today. Please be seated. Now we've struggled with Asaph with the questions of God's fairness, uh, our perception of what is fair, what is blessing, and what am I to do with those things that God brings into my life as blessings that I may not particularly like or even enjoy. So now comes the answer to all of the questions that he has been wrestling with. And the real, the two verses that you can't walk out of here not reading and not understanding, verse 17. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. And then the last verse. But as for me, 28, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all of his works. These two verses are, the, in a sense, the exposition of verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So he starts, remember, he starts with the answer. Verse 1 is the answer to all these things, and it takes him all of this time to go through and wrestle with all these things until he comes back to that conclusion. Now, we do not know how long it took to work out all of this in the psalm. This, this may have been in an afternoon he wrote this, looking back on maybe a year or two years of struggle. We, we really don't know. We're not given a time frame here. All that we know is that he begins with the Lord. He shares all of these struggles, almost to the place where his foot has almost slipped. He was ready to almost to pack in this, this faith stuff, but he doesn't. Then he comes and he gets an understanding of what the Lord is doing. So let's look at verse 15, just to, to get back up to speed. He said, I will speak thus, behold, I should have betrayed the generation of thy children. Remember, if Asaph would have stopped at the end of verse 14, it would have been really inappropriate. He was a leader. He was the, the choir director who led in worship in the temple. And if he would have stopped there, questioning God and, and, and making these accusations about how surely in vain I've kept my heart pure, I, you know, I've washed my hands in innocence. If he would have stopped there and just complained, that would not have served the purpose. He was a leader. He would have, he's supposed to demonstrate spiritual maturity. It would have added an, really an unnecessary burden upon those who were weaker in the faith than he was. So he continues on and he realizes that. He says, if I would have said this, I would have betrayed the generation of thy children. So that, this would have been bad. So he turns from his self-centered focus, you know, verse 3, I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Verse 13, surely in vain I have kept this. It was really, Lord, I've done all this. I, you know, this is driving me crazy because it's all about me. And then as we'll see, he gets in the sanctuary and finds out it's not about him. It's about the God who created him. It's about the God who calls him 
to worship. So he, for us, before we spout off on our weaknesses and our questions about God, remember who you're asking. You should always ask your questions about God. You should always bring them to Him, bring them to His Word. But if you're going to talk to people about it, make sure you are talking to somebody who you know, has been there, somebody who might be able to actually help you understand those things. The Lord says, bring your questions to me. Bring them to the Word. Um, but you know, if, if you're battling with something, you know, find somebody who has been there. Find somebody whose relationship has struggled in the same way yours is. Find somebody who is, you know, if possible, questioning the things of God in the same way that you are. That they have done that and they have come to a conclusion. Remember, Asaph is just not throwing out, you know, he's just not casting these questions to the wind. He is wrestling with these and he knows that God is good. And what, did he, what does he do? Look at verse 16. He says, when I pondered to understand this. Okay, in our world, this is stop and think. When I stopped to think about these questions, when I stopped to think about what God was doing, how many of us would not get into trouble if we just simply stopped and thought about it for a minute? Okay, how many of us, not necessarily here, but how many of us would avoid trouble would have stayed away from things that were destructive in our lives if we just would have stopped and pondered them first okay now you think oh uh, you know I'm, I'm just hurting inside and I'm, I'm i'm really looking for some a little bit of feel good a little bit of escape from the stresses in my life so i think i will uh, take drugs okay if we stopped and pondered what they do to our bodies, if we stopped and pondered what they do to the people around us, we would never take that step, okay? A little research just from uh, one type of drug here. What are the side effects of methamphetamine? Okay, you see those billboards every once in a while. You drive down, and this is you before, and this is you after. Not you, but the person on the billboard. And, and the person who's been taking methamphetamine for a year or so just looks so awful. Now, did they go and pick the worst person they could find to put on the billboard? No, that's simply what the drug does to people. Let's look. Meth abuse causes the destruction of tissues and blood vessels. It inhibits the body's ability to repair itself. Acne appears. Sores take longer to heal. The skin loses its luster and elasticity, making the addict appear years or even decades older. Methamphetamine suppresses the appetite, so you end up with a poor diet. Your teeth begin to decay. You tend to grind your teeth. Uh, in addition, it also affects cognitive abilities. It changes the brain chemistry. It can lead to disturbing and even violent behavior. Now, if all of us, just think, think rationally for a moment. If we all read these things ahead of time. Oh, and the other thing is, it has... I remember it, it's three times the addictive power of cocaine. So once you have taken it, you're hooked. I mean, it's just, just the first time, and then you're hooked, okay? The first time. If we would sit and think about this, would we really approach it? Would we really try it? Would we really take it, knowing how destructive it is? If only we took the time to ponder all the things before we jumped into them that have led us astray in life. Oh, but typically we just aren't 
we're not that smart, okay? <laughs> We've all done stupid things and look back and go, how did I get there? If I'd have just thought about it for a while, I would never have taken that step. Well, Asaph says, I pondered it. When I pondered to understand it, it was troublesome to me. There's an inner debate that's been going on from verse 2 all the way through verse 15. And he does it in a human fashion. He asks these questions from a human heart and tries to come up with the answer from a human heart. Okay? The result of his efforts to resolve this problem were by human reason. And he's come up with nothing yet. He's come up with nothing. In fact, he says, my feet almost slipped. My spiritual feet almost slipped. It's all been about me. You know, I tried to understand this, and I just didn't get it. Not until verse 17. I came into the sanctuary. That's when I began to understand it. Then I discerned their end. Now, this is probably the most important thing about Asaph's spiritual struggles here. He did not get things sorted out until he came into the sanctuary. Now, I want you to look at this sanctuary, because they just don't build them like this anymore, okay? This is a hundred and over a hundred years old, 1899, okay? Now, look, look, is this granite along wainscoting? We just, you don't, don't build churches today with granite wainscoting and pillars. You don't build a church in this shape typically today, because in 1899, they didn't have this. Now, you, most of us know that if you go over against that wall, and if you whisper in that wall, they can hear you over here just perfectly, okay? So everything that you're saying in the back row, the, the basses and tenors are hearing you, okay? Now, they did that for a reason, because there, were, there was no amplification when this place was built, okay? So money was spent so that you could hear in here. Money was spent on granite that they would put in the walls purely that it would be beautiful. Money was spent on these windows, and, you know, I don't know what it would cost to replace a window like this today. But there was a time in history, now I'm from Pittsburgh, and if you go to Pittsburgh, there are a couple big churches. One, First Pres, um, downtown, has Tiffany stained glass windows. Okay? So you understand the value of those windows with just that name on it. You know, and, and they have these two doors. Um, there, there's a center aisle, and um, behind it would be these two doors would be back there. And they were brought over from Germany, from the Black Forest of Germany, and they are huge. They're about 40 or 50 feet tall, and you can open them with one hand. Okay. Now, the patron of First Pres was Andrew Carnegie, and I think he was feeling guilt about other things, so he may have invested in churches. But understand, we really typically do not build churches like this today. Why? It costs so much money. Most of our churches, uh, and I'm overgeneralizing, are boxes. Okay? We need space in which to worship in. And because granite wainscoting and stained glass windows cost so much, most new church construction doesn't look like this doesn't look like this so when i come in here when i cross that threshold there's a sense in a place like this a sense of beauty and a sense of majesty and a sense of, of holiness now in the old days when they built cathedrals that was really designed so that you would get this sense of awe 
that you came in to worship something that was so far above you. You would look and see these high ceilings and, and, and see the light come through the, the, the very thin windows at that time and, and this great structure. Well, there should be something different about this room. Now, do we do other things in this room? Well, sure, we got the kids' Christmas program, we do recitals, we do concerts and other things. But when we come to worship the Lord, we come to here. And we come across that threshold and, and we bring all our garbage with us throughout the week. And we come here and we sit in these pews. And we sit within the body of Christ. And we sing the Word of God. And we read the Word of God. And we pray the word of God. And we hear the word of God preached. And we give honor and glory and praise to our heavenly father. That's what we do. And Asaph says, I didn't understand this. In my human reason, I just could not grasp it. And I didn't get it until I came into the sanctuary. He said, then my perspective was changed. Something happened when I came to worship God that was not happening when I wasn't worshiping God. This is what goes on in his life. This is the struggle. Now, what do you do in the sanctuary? You worship God. Worship in the Bible is often, is called many things. One in particular is drawing near to God. When you come into the sanctuary to worship, you draw near to God. And the whole of this man's thought, the whole of this man's understanding of his world was reoriented when he began to worship. His eyes were taken from him. What, what do we say in, uh, in verse 3? I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 13, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. The perspective was changed. It was taken from him and put upon the Lord. Now let's be sure about one thing that we understand this. Only believers worship. Okay? Non-believers can come into the sanctuary. Non-believers can sing the songs. Non-believers may even be emotionally moved by what they hear. Now, they may come to Christ in the middle of worship, but only believers can worship because non-believers, by definition, do not believe in what we are doing. They do not believe in the God who calls us, the God who draws us, the God who says, come and worship me. Non-believers cannot worship. So to some extent... If a non-believer comes into worship, they, they, ought to, they ought to feel a little bit uncomfortable. That We ought to welcome them, embrace them, encourage them. But really, when it comes down to worshiping God, they don't believe in Him. So they're going to feel a little bit uncomfortable. They're going to scratch their heads and go, I, I don't understand this. I don't know what they're talking about. Why is it that these people are so moved and I sit here like a stone and I don't understand? It's because they don't believe. Because their hearts have not been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit because they have not professed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Not until I went into the sanctuary of God, because worship is all about God. It's not about us. It is about giving to Him His praise and glory and honor, singing of the wonderful works that the Lord does. It is creature to creator. We don't come here and say, Lord, here I am. Lay it on me. Come and bless me. I'm in worship. You've got an hour, or an hour and 15 minutes, or whatever. That's not the way it works. We come in and say, Lord, I've come to worship you. 
If you bestow upon me understanding, I pray for that. If you bestow upon me some sense of who you are, that's fantastic. But I know I am called to praise you and to worship you. And that's what I'm here to do. I'm in the presence of the Lord. And Asaph says, who cares about the prosperity of the wicked? I'm in the presence of the Lord. What does my own suffering matter? I'm in the presence of the Lord. What was the verse 1? Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So what did he learn when he drew near to God? Verse 28. The nearness of God is my good. The nearness of God is my good. He suddenly, re suddenly realized that, that God is the goodness that cannot be taken away from those who are committed to him. Okay? Not really until we get to the New Testament do we see it clearly said. If you're in my hand, you cannot be taken from my hand. The goodness of God is not taken from us. Nothing can remove us from that. God is the goodness that cannot be taken away from those who are committed to him. You can take away our houses. You can take away our families. You can take away our friendships and our livelihoods. You can take away our lives, but you cannot take from us the goodness of God. He is the good of his people. And it's right here in the worship service that it suddenly dawns on Asaph. It dawns on him that the wicked never understand this. They never experience this. So they may have bigger houses and bigger bank accounts and better cars and more land and more fun as the world sees fun, but they don't have the one goodness that matters. Fellowship with the living God. Communion with the living God. Nearness to Him. Look at verse 17. The second half. Once they came into the sanctuary, then I perceived their end. Then I perceive their end. Let's read a little bit further. Surely you set them on slippery places. It's God that sets them on the slippery places. You, you, God, cast them down to destruction. How they're destroyed in just a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, thou will despise their form. And now 27. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You've destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. The proud, defiant, the powerful, the sinners, they thought themselves invincible. In fact, they even boasted earlier, Asaph talks about, they boasted that, that where's the knowledge of God? Surely he doesn't even exist. I've done all this on my own. And he says, no. In God's sovereign time, he will set them on the slippery place, and they will be gone. So the prosperity of the wicked can now be seen just as passing, just as, as precarious, kind of on, it's on shaky footing. God has placed them on slippery ground. In a moment's notice, they'll be gone. And what will they have? They have nothing. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 9. But God has chosen to delay his judgment upon them until the right moment. They think, wow, how, they're just prospering again and again and for years and years. And Lord, what are you doing? And he's bearing with much patience. Verse 
their sinfulness until at the right time, according to his plan, he will bring judgment upon them. So uh, I, I turn to Romans 9 because on, on Thursdays, the ladies' Bible study on Thursday morning is in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And these are tough chapters to accept. They aren't tough to read and to understand. They're tough to accept. And this is one of those passages that can be pretty difficult to take. Chapter 9, verse 21. Or does not the potter have right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? means here I am, the potter. I want to make a pot and fill it with garbage. That's my business. I want to make this pot and fill it with jewels. That's my business. I'm the potter. Here's, here's the potter. I've made a, a pot. I don't like it. What can I do with it? Destroy it. Make something else. That's what he is saying here. Then in verse 22. So what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endures with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? He just bears with them in patience until the right moment when he will destroy them because he has made them for destruction. And why did he do this? He did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy, for which he prepared beforehand for glory. Destruction of those he has prepared for destruction is done so that those he has prepared for glory might understand his mercy. Do we deserve his mercy? No. Do we deserve destruction? Yes. Why doesn't he destroy us? Because he's called us by name. Because we've come into his sanctuary and he has drawn us unto himself and he has changed our lives through the power of Christ. So Asaph begins to understand this. The destiny of the wicked rather than their immediate prosperity is the cure for his questions. He says, I don't have to like that they're prosperous. But all I have to understand is that they do not know the goodness of God that I know. Okay? Well, one might be tempted to envy their lives. Who could possibly want their future? He says, I have a heart that's been changed by the Lord. I understand what it means when I come into the sanctuary, who I am worshiping. Back to Psalm 73, verses 21 and 22. Worship gave Asaph this new perspective on his own heart. It took away his false pride. It took away his view that, that he was the center of the universe. Because only a man who thought really highly of himself could have thought that he didn't deserve trial, that he didn't deserve these struggles, that he deserved only blessing. So his whole view about himself has been reoriented and reseen, as well as the answer that he has been seeking. So when the psalmist recovers his perspective on this, that God is good and that God has been th with him this whole time. Look at verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with me. You've taken hold of my right hand. It's not that Asaph has been gripping on to the Lord this whole time. It's the other way around. It's in the middle of his question, in the middle of his doubt, in the middle of his struggle. God has had a hold of Asaph's hand the whole time. When Asaph thinks, I, I, just, I was almost ready to slip and to pitch it all, but God says, I've had your hand this whole time. We've been in those places. You know what it's like to be in the midst of, of struggle or depression or trial, and you think, oh, I just can't take it anymore. 
You know, God, where are you? If we had the same eyes that Asaph had, we would know, he's got hold of my hand. I belong to him. I can't slip. I'm not going to fall away. I mean, he's care the whole time. The whole time. Worship is first and foremost something that is spiritual. So at, Ace, at worship, Asaph begins to consider more the spiritual aspect than the physical aspect of things. He understands what God is doing. Remember, in his day, most people uh, equated shalom, peace, with material blessing. So they looked and said, well, they're getting more of the shalom of the Lord than I am. And he said, no, not really. Not really. The wicked are not free from life's trials. I might perceive them to be, but they're not. The prosperity of the wicked, it only made them greedier. It only made them prouder. Their hearts were not changed. Their hearts were not changed. Prosperity led to spiritual complacency, even pride and blasphemy. So Asaph's affliction, though it's unpleasant, serves a purpose. And that purpose is this. It, it's when the Lord reaches out and grabs his hand, the Lord is drawing him closer to himself. All of these struggles, you know, and, and how long this took. And now I said maybe a year or two, maybe five or ten years that he wrestled with these things. I mean, how much have we wrestled with questions about God? How long have we been in struggles in our own lives and said, just could not get our minds around what the Lord was doing? And at the end of it, we see how he cared for us, how he pulled us unto himself, and how much stronger and better we are because of those struggles. He never let us go. He, we were never out of his care or out of his sight. Romans chapter 5 says, Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, character hope, and hope does not disappoint us. Because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. Let me read this last portion one more time. Nevertheless, I am continually with me. Thou hast taken hold of my right hand. With thy counsel thou wilt guide me, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you and beside you I desire nothing else this was the guy who at one time was so envious of the prosperous so envious of the wicked so envious of the arrogant now what does he say I desire nothing on earth but thee my flesh and my heart may fail but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever he's out there on his own in a sense, with his human understanding. And he walks across the threshold of the sanctuary and comes into the presence of God and draws nears to him and pours out his heart and sings and glorifies the Lord. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's pray. Lord Asaph's journey is like so many of the Psalms. They start out and they know who you are, but they have all these questions. What are you doing? How could this be possible? Don't you see my enemies are attacking me? And over the course of time, their heart has changed. Their understanding of what you are doing, in a sense, comes full circle. And they're reminded that 
that you're my shield and my portion. There's nothing else that I want. I would not trade what I have in God for anything else, not the prosperity of the wicked, not the safety that they think they have. But you hold our hand, and you never let us go. There in the midst of our struggles, there in the midst of our trials, there in the midst of the pain and the suffering and and all the mess of our lives, you've got a hold of your children, and you do not let us go. You don't promise us that we will not face those struggles and trials and mess. Some of it is a result of the sinful world. Some of it is a result of our own mistakes and, and errors. But you do not let us go. Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit upon us today. Fix this into our hearts. Today, if somebody's in the midst of one of those struggles and trials, that they would be reminded of your care. You may not end their trial for some time. You may not remove them from that struggle or from, from the pain. But remind them that you are there, carrying them through it. That you are their portion and their shield. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.